0: We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. Christmas may be in the rearview mirror, but perhaps this story from Sarah Achenbach about Christmas traditions and the ensuing negotiations that can follow will still hold some resonance.
1: There's a couple of things you need to know. First of all, I love Christmas, it's my favorite holiday of the year. I plan all year for Christmas. Give you an idea. Aside from a few Erasmus CDs, the Grease soundtrack, and some other soundtracks, the only thing I own is Christmas music. Everything from The Chipmunks to Handel's Messiah, I have it all. In fact, a few years ago when I um, had my will um, made up, um, I, the only funeral arrangement that I've stipulated is that, that sleigh ride be played at my service, and I'm serious about that. I leave it up to my husband whether it's the Arthur Fiedler version or Johnny Mathis. I don't care, but as long as it's played. Um, I consider the December issue of Martha Stewart Living my pornography. (laughs) Love it. But by far, my favorite thing about Christmas is gift wrap. And this is how you wrap a present. Or at least this is how, and I'll hold it up so you all can see, this is how my mother and I wrap presents. In fact, she taught me that... The way you wrap the gift is just as important, if not more important, than what's inside it. In fact, what's inside this package is a pair of moss-green Polartec socks for my mother. But you know, it's really the effort in my family. Now I think I single-handedly support the Towson Area School Wrapping Paper Fundraisers. They should have my name pre-printed on those forms, because I kid you not, at this very moment there are 80 rolls of wrapping paper in my house, true story. True, absolutely true. I have enough ribbon to stretch from here to Raven Stadium. And before you think that I'm a complete whack job, there are several members of the audience who on Sunday will arrive at my house with about 40 other women, their minivans stuffed with all the packages that they've bought for their friends and family, to come wrap all their gifts at my house at my annual present wrapping party. So it's just about my favorite five hours of the year. There's some clapping, they love the party. In fact, I I had um, a son this August, and when my friends found out I was pregnant, several of them, after congratulating me, said, you're going to have the party, right? I mean, they were really worried about this. But anyway, the other thing that you need to know is that I do love my mother-in-law. She's a nice woman. She's devoted to her two kids, and I really couldn't ask for a more generous or more loving grandson, I mean, a grandmother to my two children, to my two sons that being said her holiday traditions suck <laughs> they're awful uh, first of all her idea of christmas brunch is and i'll put this down so you can all admire it her idea of christmas brunch is to take a pyrex casserole dish shove as many slices of wonder bread into it as you can slather it with egg beaters and worcestershire sauce overbake it serve it with pastries from sam's club and folgers crystals uh, within the styrofoam cups in fact the whole meal is served on plastic. Now, I own 20 place settings of Spode Christmas tree china. And I have to tell you that that meal is so hard for me to swallow on so many levels. Then, then there's the whole Christmas tree thing. I'm an airy, Fraser fir, white lights kind of gal. My in-laws go out and chop down the stubbiest, ugliest, sharpest tree they can find <laughs> and put those big, bulbous colored lights from the 60s on, which I know some people like the colored lights, but no, 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 no. Then there's the gift wrap. My very sweet father-in-law, who, uh, by the way, today was at my house to babysit my uh, four-month-old. and I couldn't practice this because, of course, I couldn't trash his wife in the basement while he's feeding my child. Um, (laughs) That's just really, that's like getting on Santa's naughty list. But... He goes out, and he's obsessive-compulsive, and he buys in bulk the same pattern of gift wrap, about 20 rolls of it, and wraps everybody's gifts in the same gift wrap, and he wraps everything. I mean, the stockings, the travel size of the Colgate, it's wrapped. The band deodorant, it's wrapped. And then he puts those, you know, those bows that come in the bag. He puts those stick-on bows on every package not new bows, the same bows that have been around since 1991 when I joined the family. And so there you have it. Now the only tradition that my mother-in-law and I don't seem to have for the holidays is that in 15 years of me being married to her oldest child and only son, We've never established a tradition of who goes where for the holidays. You know, do we spend Christmas Eve with my family? Do we spend it with theirs? What do we do for Christmas Day? So every year we argue anew about where we're going to (laughs) go. And this has been building to sort of arms-level negotiations. And and last year took a really, really ugly turn. It started out on such a positive note. I had Thanksgiving for my family and my in-laws at our house uh, last Thanksgiving a year ago and thanksgiving is a holiday she can't touch because although my father had the very bad misfortune 17 years ago of dying of cancer he had the great timing to do it on thanksgiving night making it an untrumpable holiday as far as i'm concerned so anyway we're serving pie my sister is playing scrabble with us proving that she is indeed the smart one and she is cuz she married an orphan there's never any question where they go for the holidays uh, again <laughs> Again, true story. So um, I figure it's at that moment, and I talked to my mother beforehand. Among, In front of witnesses, I said to my in-laws, this year for Christmas, my mother and my brother are coming late Christmas Eve afternoon. They're spending the night, and my sister and her family will drive down from Harrisburg, where all my family's from, to spend Christmas Day with us, so we can be with you all day Christmas Eve, they live in Westminster, until about 230 all smiles, great, that sounds wonderful, yay, two weeks later, we're at my nine-year-old's church choir Christmas concert, and again, in front of witnesses, and in the presence of God, I reiterate the plans, all smiles, great, that's wonderful, perfect, I was so happy. Well, a few days before Christmas, I come in from some errands, and my answering machine is blinking. I play the message. It's my mother-in-law telling us that we're to be at her house on Christmas Day at 11 o'clock. She wants to get a head start on brunch. All right. I immediately pick up the phone and call my in-laws. Now, when my father-in-law answers the phone, no matter what conversation it is, he's a human. He's um, a human speaker phone You say something to him. He will immediately turn to whoever's in the room and repeat what you've said. So I pick up the phone. Uh, You know, that's not what we'd planned. We're going to be with you Christmas Eve. She's in the kitchen with him. He turns to her, says what I say. She immediately screams, tell her I want Christmas. Christmas. I immediately scream back, that's not what we planned. I've never raised my voice to either of them in 15 years, well, then 14 years of marriage to their son. And she screams back, tell her next year I claim Christmas. I mean, it's like getting really frightening and the other thing you need to know is at this point last December my husband and I were going through our third and final in vitro fertilization after a very long and painful and unsuccessful attempt to have a second child so I don't know whether or not it was the artificial hormones that I had been injecting into myself four or five times a day or if it was fourteen years of holiday angst dealing with her but I did something that I promised my husband I wouldn't do they had no idea we were doing any of this was so upset I spilled the whole beans about what was going on in my life and then I did something I thought I'd never do and I said that's why I don't need to take this and hung up the phone. (laughs) The next call I made was to the Jimmy Carter of our family and that's my husband's sister and she negotiated the (laughs) peace for us and we arrived nothing was ever said then or now about this conversation And we arrive in Westminster on Christmas Eve at 11 o'clock, all smiles and sweetness, and we choke down the casserole. We open the gifts. We carefully place all the bows back in the bag. And at about 1.30, my third cup of Folgers, I decide it's time to gather my son, all the Legos, and my husband and start heading back down the road. Because my mom and my brother were going to be there, and I had to get ready. And I go into the kitchen and my mother-in-law's pulling out containers from takeout containers from Bob Evans. Now that's nothing new for my in-laws. They pretty much eat every night at Bob Evans on 140 in Westminster. They have a table waiting for them every night. Their server knows exactly what they want. They never have to use a menu. I kid you not. In fact, in their house there is an 8 by 10 glossy photo of their first server at Bob Evans. It's just- <laughs> It's his high school graduation picture. They attended his graduation. They attended his wedding. And they attended his graduation from police academy. So when she's taking out the containers, I thought, okay, yeah, well, they're just going to eat. Then she pulls out from the pre- freezer this frozen turkey breast and starts slathering country crock spread on it. And I looked at her and I said, what are you doing? She goes, well, we're having Christmas dinner too. And again, I thought, not in the plan and not enough time for it and then she promptly puts the frozen turkey breast in the oven and announces she's going into the living room to watch her grandsons play with the toys she bought them i spent the next hour shaving frozen slices of turkey off that turkey breast microwaving it alternating microwaving the ham and green beans the carrots and the mashed potatoes from bob evans and trying to make crescent rolls and i fed the family in shifts because none of it came out at the same time and we we did get back home. My mom and brother let themselves in with the key, and they were waiting for us. And it turned out to be a lovely holiday, I guess, in the end with my family. And... Um, I have to say that this year is shaping up to be quite ugly. In fact, as I speak this, my sister-in-law once again is negotiating the peace with my mother-in-law right now uh, in Westminster, hoping we can salvage this year's holiday. And as I was complaining to my mother the other night about this going on and on and on, my mother went all Dr. Phil on me. And she said, well, you know, dear, you and she are exactly alike. You both want the holidays just how you want them, and you don't want to budge on it. I paused and I said to my mom, if you ever say that again to me, (laughs) I swear it's a stick-on-bow for you.
0: That was a stoop story from Sarah Achenbach about the importance of keeping the peace during the holidays. Short break now on the record. When we're back, another stoop story to mark a new year with a tale of new birth. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Looking ahead to a new year, here's a stoop story from Kelly Rudis about the awe of birth and the power of transformation.
2: So birth has been a theme in my life. I'm a nurse midwife, so that's obvious, but my obsession with birth started when I was very young because I never knew my own birth story. I was adopted at two and a half months, Old uh, to a wonderful family. However, it doesn't matter how much your family loves you, it doesn't really fill those gaps of curiosity you have uh, to know your origins, to know where you came from, um, to know your own story of your birth, who your birth mother is, what was she like, what was she thinking, what was she feeling. Did she see me? Did she hold me? Who held me? Um, So I had the great fortune of meeting my birth mother, Cynthia, when I was 23 years old. And um, we happened to be living in the same area in D.C. I was in D.C. She was in Rockville. And it was like a love, like falling in love. Um, When we first met, we... It was like a reunion, not a meeting, because we once again did see each other, hold each other. And um, I got to hear my story and her story. It was our story. Um, So she was living in South Dakota, in Sioux Falls. She had... um, Uh, was uh, uh, basically a hippie seamstress turning people's regular pants into uh, (laughs) bell-bottoms. And the shop was called The Clothes Horse, which I thought was very cool. And this was the Vietnam era uh, so I just loved hearing that I was a love child and, <laughs> and it turns out there are these guys down the street with a head shop. And, uh, so she met one of the guys, Lyndon, who had a motorcycle and they'd go on these long romantic motorcycle rides together. And, uh, that's how I was conceived. <laughs> so, <laughs> so lo and behold, she becomes pregnant and, um, turns out Lyndon really was not part of her plan. He had his own path. He was off on a cross-country motorcycle trip, got in an accident. They just kind of, you know, drifted apart. And really, she wanted this decision to be her own. And um, she had a sister in New York at the time, and she thought New York would be a great place to be. Um, She was 20 years old. Um, she knew she'd have the support of her sister and also feel really free to make her own decision. And she thought very long about this. In fact, um, through the entire pregnancy, she really wasn't sure what she was going to do um, and considered all the options. And in 1970, 1971, New York was a place you, you could safely get an abortion if you wanted as well. Um, so I was really relieved to hear this, that she thought so deeply about this um, And in the end, she decided um, it was really the best thing or or really the least objectionable option um, for her and for me. And she really felt that I deserved so much more than she could give as a young 21-year-old who was just getting her life started. Um, So um, she entered Bronx Lebanon Hospital in February of 1971. And um, uh, as was the custom in those days, um, women really labored alone. Um, No one was with her. She was in a hallway, alone, scared, on a stretcher, um, in labor, in pain, howling. um, And um, people were telling her to shut up um, when she was you know, screaming these these primal screams in response to her pain, and she remembers a man in a white coat walking up to her and slapping her in the face. And um, soon after, she was rolled down the hallway, um, likely put under something called twilight sleep, where you really have no recollection of what happened and um, what we think is probably as many babies in 1971, born to welfare mothers in particular. Um, you know, she was knocked out, and I was dragged out by, by forceps, most likely. Um, so um, I have my birth story, but I still had this obsession with birth, that this mission, and I was already a nurse, and I... I, I decided to be a nurse midwife. And um the amazing thing about being a midwife is you you join this unofficial club of other people who are also birth fanatics and uh <laughs> um birth addicts, birthophiles, natophiles, I, I don't know what to call us. Um, but, you know, we're, we're midwives, we're obstetricians, we're OB nurses, we're doulas, birth advocates, family physicians, and we're just completely in awe of this process of pregnancy and birth. And um, and what's really amazing about it is is the power of transformation and... Um, you know, it still it still amazes me after delivering over a thousand babies that I am right there, like I could not be any closer, and yet a baby is inside there, and then is outside there. I just, you know, I'm I'm in awe. Um, so, I love it. <laughs> so, um, and and I have this opportunity as a midwife um, to be with. Any woman, every woman, no matter where she is in her life, what her life circumstances are, and at that point where um, you're you're really your most vulnerable when you're in labor, um, because the trick to labor is um, you really have to relinquish control. You really have to just go through it um, to get to the other side. And it's really at the point where things are most intense, and you feel like the complete gravitational force of the earth between your legs and the baby 's head descending and stretching everything like a ring of fire um, <laughs> sorry. Um, and and my job as a midwife to say is to say i 'm here with you i 'm here with you i 'm going to help you through this. You're not alone. And this sounds crazy, but find that spot where it's most intense and that's where you need to push. And we're going to get through this and you're going to get through to the other side. And the other side happens to be meeting your baby for the first time. And, um, and it's scary, but, um, she can do it, and pulling down from, you know, that, that scary, scary place and finding that last bit of energy inside. Um, and then the baby's born, and the room is filled with the first sounds, the baby's cry, and the joy is just palpable. And it's such a privilege to be part of this, Um But I've also found it's a privilege um, to be in those not so happy moments. Um, Working in Baltimore City all of my career, um, I've had the opportunity and and really made the choice um, to be with women under the most difficult circumstances. And these are women who, a lot of women who experience a lot of isolation who have been victims of violence, um, many molested at points in their life, um, incarcerated, um, addicted, and um, many women who have been alone who don't have a husband or boyfriend or family or friends with them who are alone. And it's it's the nurses, the midwives, the doctors, all, all of us who are there taking care of her. And, you know, she's a stranger to us, but but we care for her and um i really feel it's it's kind of like um liberation theology which says you know speaks about a preferential treatment for the poor and um and, and midwifery in that way is a calling to me um so um being with women at that time, I, I see Cynthia in these patients. And, um, and it's a chance for me to reconnect with that experience. And I think it's been a gift to me and, and gives me the strength to be with someone else and, and be present and, um, and connect with her and let her know that she's not alone, that someone's going to be there with her. The babies who are born also kind of have a special little connection. Like to to hold them, but um, with all of this, I really really believe that um, um, with being with women, and that's what midwife means, is being with women um, and being with women at their most vulnerable. Uh, Giving them compassion and dignity um, is a way to give birth um, to humanity and a better humankind. Thank you.
0: That was a stoop story from nurse midwife Kelly Rudis about being present, birthing babies, and learning her own birth story. Let me take this moment to thank you for your support of WIPR and On The Record this past year. It means everything to us that you listen. And if you support us financially, it means even more. We realize every day we could not do this without you. From all of us, me, Sheila Cast, your On The Record host, senior supervising producer Maureen Harvey, senior producer Melissa Gere, and producer Sam Burma dawes We wish you a happy, healthy, wise 2024.